Okay. Well, um, so if you were to kind of ask the average unbeliever or non-Christian, somebody who would say they're not a believer, they don't trust in Jesus, and uh, if you ask them what they thought of Christianity, it would probably boil down to something like a set of rules that have to be followed. And I think that that is generally the belief system that Christianity is a set of rules that, we've, that we fit ourselves within, that we follow these rules, we do these things, and that's what makes us Christians. And you can see this kind of per- portrayed in the entertainment world quite a bit. In, in film or television shows that portray Christians, there's not a lot out there, but there's some characters that have existed over the years that show us this. And one of them is uh, from The Office, uh, Angela Martin. If you've ever watched The Office, Angela is one of the accountants. And in the early seasons, she is portrayed as the Christian judgmental person who just looks down on everybody else in The Office. Uh, And then as the series goes on and her character develops, we learn that she's actually doing all the same things she's judging them for doing, uh, but just doing it more secretly or trying to do it more secretly. And so you have characters like that. And that is a perception of Christianity uh, that those who don't profess it think Christianity is. It's full of judgmental people who want to just have everybody follow the rules. Or you can think of the Simpsons, Ned Flanders character, right? The These are the stereotypes of Christians in popular culture. Um, But here's the thing. If we we really did uh, follow Christ or or rather follow Christianity purely through a set of rules, um, I think all of us would probably go, eh, yeah, no, I'd rather not actually do that. I'd rather have fun and just not, I'm not really interested in just being about the rules. I think most of us would probably land there uh, maybe not all of us, but some of us really like structure in life and, and having somebody tell you how to live is probably up your alley. But most people are like, nah, I don't think so. Um, but here's the difference. Christianity is not a set of rules, purely a set of rules to be followed. It actually is a person named Jesus Christ. And yes, there are things that Jesus calls us to, clearly. We're going to see some of that in this text in front of us today. Um, but it is not purely about trying to push ourselves into this box of, of rules, and that's what makes us good. What, what actually Christianity is, is following the person of Jesus Christ, trusting his work to be our work, trusting his righteousness to be our righteousness, uh, and then following him uh, through his spirit's leading all the, way, all the days of our life. That's what Christianity is. And that is a way more compelling thing to be about, in my view, at least. Uh, I, I would much rather follow the person of Jesus Christ than follow a bunch of rules. But as, but as we do get through the New Testament, we see that there are expectations on Christians. Uh, Christians are called to live lives that are countercultural different from everyone else. And it's not because we have to in order to be saved. It actually is the opposite. It's that we are saved apart from any of those rules and we're saved purely through the person of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross and resurrection for us. But then because of him, we get to obey as an overflow of our hearts to him. And so in 1 Thessalonians, we see this letter being very interesting. The first three chapters are no instruction. It's just Paul encouraging this church with 
who they are in Christ, who they are, and, and what they're about, and how joyful he is about them as, as people. But then as we get into the second, last, or the last couple chapters, he does take a turn, and he begins to instruct them on some things. He's instructing them on how they should live this Christian life. He's, he doesn't start with that, though. He doesn't start with, okay, here's all the rules to keep yourself in Jesus. No, he starts with, you're in Christ. You are loved by him. Uh, in fact, go back to chapter 1, verse 4. He says, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So he starts this letter not by browbeating them for all the things they're doing wrong, but encouraging them in the gospel of Jesus Christ, in this good news that Jesus came and called them to himself. And, but but as, they, as he continues to walk through that with them over the first three chapters, he, he does want to get practical and help them and be helpful towards them. And so that's what chapter 4 does. It's the, it's the turn uh, in this letter towards the practical instruction for living the Christian life. Paul's doing this because, as we've said throughout this whole series, he was there with them for three weeks, maybe six weeks, maybe a couple of months. Um, But for the most part, he was there and then he was gone. And he he didn't get to finish teaching them the things that he would would have had time to teach. And so he kind of throws some things into this letter to help, um, help them meet some of their, uh, their, the lack of knowledge that they have in the Christian life. But here's the key. If we, if we don't hear this, we don't understand this going into it, it's going to be very easy for us to just look at what's said outside of the context of the letter and go, okay, I just got to force myself to fit into this. What he's doing is not just forcing us to follow rules. What he's doing is he's showing us that because of who we are in Jesus, we are actually able to live in the way that the gospel calls us to live. It's not to be in Jesus that we do this. It is because we are in Jesus, because of who we are, what our identity is, that we can then begin to live out of that. And that's where the first three verses or the first uh, three and a half verses or so take us. Uh, If you Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. It says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Okay, we'll stop there for just a second. Let's talk about what we're seeing. This is basically the introduction to the, to the new kind of transition in the letter to, okay, Paul's going to teach us some things here, right? And so he's introducing this whole section by saying, here's what I want to do. I want to urge you in Jesus to, to walk or to live as if Jesus actually matters in your life and to keep doing that more and more, to keep growing in this Savior who loved you and died for you and rose for you. He, he's saying that in the Lord Jesus, we get to live these things out and we, we increasingly grow in loving God and pleasing God and living lives that, that honor him 
And then he says this, the, the, la- the first half of chapter, verse three, he says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. God's will for you is that you would be sanctified. Now that's a fancy word, right? And what that word simply means is that we would be progressively, gradually made more like Jesus through the course of our lives. That's God's will for you as a Christian, that as you grow, as you mature, as you keep walking with Jesus, you will become more and more like him. We will not reach a point in our earthly lives where we will be completely like him because we were told by Paul and I believe it's 1 Corinthians that that day comes when we see him face to face. But there is an increase and a growth in the Christian life and that increase in growth happens all through, throughout our lives and in all the facets of our life. And so Paul's going to just start to walk through some of the ways uh, sanctification is meant to grow and work in us, uh, and, and particularly to this church in Thessalonica, um, which obviously this letter was written a couple thousand years ago to a, uh, a group of Christians in a very large Greek-Roman uh, city. And uh, they had all kinds of things happening in their culture and a lot of things that we kind of understand because their culture wasn't that different from ours really in the grand scheme of things. So Paul's going to start to walk them through what sanctification looks like in their lives. And that's where we pick pick it up in the second half of verse 3. Here's the first thing that he tells us. And I think this is the the main thing he's going to say in this section. That's his his main point. And then he's going to walk them through how to do that. Here it is that you abstain from sexual immorality. That you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, I don't think it's a surprise to anybody that the Greek and Roman culture was, was a pretty wild place. Um, there is really nothing uh, that they did that, is, um, that, that was like good and right and honorable in, in this regard. There was all kinds of craziness happening. And Paul is saying to this church that you guys need to be different. You, and maybe needs the wrong word. You guys are called to be different is probably a better way to say that. But you're called to be different. You are called to abstain from sexual immorality. So here's, here's what we need to see first out of the gate. Sexual immorality, and I'll define that in a moment, is a problem. It's a problem today. Uh, but it's not a new problem. That should encourage us a little bit, right? Like this was not written to the church in Anago and Paul telling us to do this, although it is written to us because we have it in our Bibles and we're reading it today and it should be read by all the churches and applied. But this was written to a church thousands of years ago and they had the same problems we do. That's encouraging in a weird way, right? Uh, and, and so sexual immorality is a problem. It's not a new problem, but it's one that every generation has to figure out and work through in Jesus. So what is this phrase, sexual immorality? Well, that, it, it's from one Greek word. The Greek word is porneia. And I'm guessing you can figure out what, what other word comes from this, this Greek word. But um, porneia is, a, is just a junk drawer term. It was a very wide, broad term. It, it, inca- it captured lots and lots of things, basically everything. 
Um, and so it's a term for any kind of sexual activity outside of God's design for it, which is monogamous, heterosexual marriage or celibacy. And I know just me saying that culturally in this moment sounds insane and bigoted and all the things, but this is what the Bible clearly presents as the, the proper way to live within sexuality. It is, it is within monogamous. That is, you're only married to one person at one time, right? We're not polygamists. Heterosexual, it's between one man and one woman. And marriage, which is a lifelong union between one man and one woman that is freely made as a commitment for life through the public expression of vows. That's what marriage is. And I know a lot of people are like, we don't need marriage because we're married in our hearts or whatever. Um, but that's not marriage. Marriage is an actual public commitment made through the, through the reciting of vows um, that is meant to be a lifelong commitment between one man and one woman. That's God's ideal. That's God's intention. Now we know that we live in a broken world all kinds of wonky things happen, right? And, and, and bad things can happen to us and it's not always our fault. Sometimes we're victims of others. Uh, sometimes we make foolish choices ourselves. But the ideal of what God is calling us to is either a, a lifetime of singleness where we abstain from sexual immorality or a lifetime of committed marriage. And God calls each of us uh, to different things. Right? And Paul, we don't have time to get into all of this because really we're, we're just like trying to scratch the surface of these things. But Paul talks a great deal in 1 Corinthians about these things. I'd encourage you to read uh, chapter 7, uh, particularly uh, if you're interested in more of what the Bible teaches on this subject. But, but here's what he is saying. He says, you are to abstain from sexual immorality. That is, you are to abstain from anything outside sexuality outside of God's intention for it. Again, I know that's not a popular thing to talk about, but that is what the Bible says. So we're going to go there. Um, now let's, let's turn a little bit more to this verse and look at it a little bit more closely. It says that you abstain. And that's important. That you abstain from sexual immorality. As Christians, we are called to countercultural life, um, but we are not the morality police trying to force everyone else to do what we're called to do. We are called to look at ourselves and respond according to the gospel of Jesus Christ in our lives. We are not meant to just be running around judging everyone else when we are ourselves not really sure what we think about these things. We are called to abstain ourselves. And, and so we, we need to be careful here to recognize our role in this. As Christians, our job is to simply tell people about Jesus. And then we let Jesus sort it out. That, that's really what we do. Like there's a lot of burden off of us in this because we tell people about Jesus who died for everyone, who, who loves them, who wants them to, to be saved. And then we trust that as Jesus draws people to himself, he will begin the work of cleansing and working and changing people. What we're called to is not to change everyone else. We're called to see ourselves within this. So you abstain, it says, 
Paul Tripp, who's an author and pastor, he, he says this. I thought it was just really helpful on this. He says, if I had the power to fundamentally change another person by force, by the force of my anger, by the power of my logic, or by guilt, shame, or fear, then the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus would not have been necessary. Change at the level of the human heart is always an act of God's grace. Okay, so that's, that's what we need to rest in in this. We are called to see God work in our lives and change us. And that's, that's where we should be emphasizing this. Okay, so we're seeing this sexual immorality is what we're called to abstain from. But how do we do that? How do we grow in this? Paul's going to spend the rest of these verses giving us three ways that we can see growth in this area in our lives. Look at verse 4 and 5. It says that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Okay, so the first thing that Paul gives us is foundational and vital. And it is that we are to learn self-control through the Holy Spirit, which is one of the fruit of the spirits, uh, fruits of the Spirit is self-control, right? So we are to lean into God's Spirit for self-control in this regard, to control our own bodies. Remember, it's to control your own body. You're not called to control everyone else's body. You're called to control your own body to control that in, it says, holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. And so the first way that we can see God's work in us through, in this area is by leaning into his spirit for the control of ourselves that we need. And we, we need to recognize that the appropriate place for a sexual relationship is within monogamous heterosexual marriage or celibacy if you're single. And so here's the thing. I'm, I know this, that there's a lot of single people in this room and you're looking at me like, oh, great. Yeah, thanks for that, right? Um, it's easy to say if you're married or whatever, but here's the thing. Everybody, regardless of whether we're married or single, are called to live in self-control. We are called to live self-controlled lives, even in this area, even if you're married. Right? We're, we're not here to just, just do whatever we want with whoever we want. We're called to have control and love driving us. In fact, 1 Corinthians 7, Paul talks greatly about the idea of mutual submission between husbands and wives in this area. And so we have to recognize that if we're single, yes, we're called to, to abstain from all forms of sexuality. We, but if we're married, we're also called to abstain from that which is outside of its appropriate context. And so we're called to, um, to actually live in self-control regardless of whether we're married or single. So we see that's the first thing, that we are called to self-control. Then look at the second thing Paul draws out, verse 6. It says that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because it is the Lord, uh, because the Lord is an avenger of all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. 
So the second thing we're drawn to here as we talk about um, how to abstain from sexual immorality is that first we see the need for self-control by the Spirit of God. And the second thing we need to recognize is that sexual sin does not just affect us. It actually wrongs others. That's what Paul says, right? He says that no one transgress, which is to say trespass, or wrong his brother, brother or sister, that's the word there, it's just the, the generic term for brothers or sister in this matter, in our sexual relationships. We are not to harm others in it. And I know it is such an easy thing for us to say, well, sexual sin really only affects me, it doesn't affect anyone else. And that's just not true. Let me give you a few examples quickly here. Uh, I know the, the, the one big area of sexual immorality that, that a lot of us struggle with in our day because of the ease of access is pornography on the internet. And I know that that feels like, hey, that doesn't hurt anybody. Well, it does actually, because the pornography industry is actually an industry that makes more money per capita or per, per year, annual year, than all of professional sports combined. And uh, it is the primary industry that fuels the sex slavery and human trafficking trades. Uh, it's a, it's a, because there's so much demand, there is a need to keep on producing more. And what has happened is it's created an entire sex slave industry that is working under the shadows. And so you can't say truly with a clear conscience, oh, I can look at this and it doesn't hurt anybody. It, it does. It hurts people more than we realize. Now, just because we don't see how it's hurting doesn't mean it's not hurting. Beyond that, we see adultery obviously would harm your spouse and your children. You see that lustful thoughts running amok creates a disconnect between you and your spouse if you're married. We, we see the, the, the ramifications of sexual sin affecting people all over the place. And it's easy for us to say, that doesn't actually happen. It's just between me. Uh, and it's, it's not. It's not. It harms others. And that's what Paul is saying. You need to recognize that that is a part of this. Okay. But let's go on to the third thing. And here's where we start to see a little bit of good news, okay? Let's we can breathe a little bit here. Um, verse 7 and 8 says, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Let's bring in some good news today. The primary way, this, this third way, the kind of Paul's leading us to this, is um, that to combat sexual sin in our lives, the primary way we do that is by knowing who we belong to. It's, it's knowing whose we are. It, it's knowing who we are in Jesus, that we are called by God in Jesus to be holy, to be pure, to, to be living lives that honor him. This is rooted uh, in your identity as a son or a daughter of God, that God has not called you 
to impurity, but he has called you in holiness, meaning that the righteousness of God is given to you by faith. And as God looks at you, you are righteous because of Jesus. And so because that's who you are, you can live out of that and from that and through that. There's a passage I want to take us to that I think hits on this really well. It's 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 6, 9 through 11. And this is just super helpful, I think, for us. Um, Paul says to the Corinthian church, which was also a church that struggled with a lot of these issues, Paul spends three to four chapters in 1 Corinthians uh, dealing with this issue with this per- that particular church. The Thessalonians got like eight verses. The Corinthians get many chapters. So probably a, a difference of how much they're struggling. Um, but here's what he says in verse nine of chapter six. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, what, do we, what does that mean? Well, that means that those who are not in Christ with his righteousness will not be in the kingdom of God. We have to be in Jesus and be righteous in him to be in the kingdom of God. That's, that's the only way in, is through trusting Christ for his righteousness to be given to us. And so then he says this, do not be deceived Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So you read through that list and every one of us in this room can find something on that list, probably many somethings on that list, that we have been guilty of. And so is Paul saying you're just out now because you've struggled with reviling or being greedy or thieves or being a drunkard or being sexually immoral? There's not a person in this room or on this planet that doesn't fall short of these things. Uh, and, And so where's our hope? Verse 11 is our hope. He says, and such were some of you. You were that at one time, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. There is no one disqualified from the kingdom of God who turns to Jesus. The only people disqualified from the kingdom of God are those who don't believe they need him and resist him forever. You are not disqualified because of your sexual immorality or your idolatry or your homosexuality or your, your adultery or your greed or your drunkenness or your reviling or any of, of the rest. That's not what disqualifies you. The only thing that disqualifies you is not being in Jesus So if you're in Jesus, you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified. And to be justified is a crucial word. It means to be treated as as if you were completely innocent, to have your entire slate wiped clean. To be justified is to be declared righteous before God. 
It is the old Sunday school way that we learned it is that it is just as if I'd never sinned. That's how you remember that. Justified is just as if I'd never sinned. That's how God sees you. And so though Paul lists out all these things that had once defined the Corinthian Christians and have once defined you and me, we are now in a different category altogether. We are washed. We are cleaned. We are sanctified. We are justified in Jesus by his spirit. We are called to this kind of life. Again, it's so going back to the beginning of this, it's, it's not that you have to white knuckle your way into these rules, but we are called to this by God who is eternally faithful to us. And that's really where it's rooted in. The, the whole idea of being faithful in our, in our sexuality in whatever form we're tempted towards, to be faithful in this is a reflection of the person of Jesus Christ himself. Jesus' relationship to his church is that of purity and exclusive love and total faithfulness and eternal commitment. God is that committed to you, and so we are called to be that committed to our spouse if we're married or to Jesus if we're not married. We are called to be living these things out because of who he is. It's not just about white knuckling this thing. And listen, if you hear anything today, you need to hear this. You cannot do this without Jesus. You can't do it. You will never be able to, uh, to abstain from sexual immorality apart from him. You have not been able to do that up to this point, and you know it. And you won't be able to going forward without him. We need Jesus. With Jesus, we can begin to grow in this thing. Now, listen, I think this is crucial. This is not a once and done, it's over with. You're never going to struggle in these things again. The reason the Bible puts so much emphasis on sexual purity within our lives is because it is an ongoing struggle forever as human beings. And we have to continually cast upon Jesus. This isn't a call for you to just immediately wake up tomorrow and fix yourself and never have another struggle. It is a call to continually draw yourself back to the one who can help you through it. I think there's a, I'll I'll close with this. There's a song uh, that is pretty new. It was just published by a group called City of Light. And we sing a, a number of their songs in worship here. If you haven't sung this one yet, it'll, it'll get on the rotation probably at some point. But there's a line from it that I thought was really, really helpful and good. And it says this, I trust with Jesus that it is finished for he has paid my every debt. No need to pull it all together for what is broken, he will mend. I come to Jesus, I lay down my weakness. No need for hiding here in his light. This truth I treasure, my peace forever is being known and loved by him. That's what gets our hearts to be what they ought to be, being known and loved by him. So we don't need to hide. We don't need to perform. We don't need to pretend. We don't need to pull it all together because whatever's broken in us, which is everything as sinners, whatever's broken, he will mend. He will. And I think it's just one of those things we got to continually come to Jesus again and again, knowing that he has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. 
And so we get to walk in newness of life. So I want to encourage you in those things today, and I'll, I'll pray for us as we, as we uh, transition into a time of singing together as a congregation. Father, would you help us today? I know that a topic like this is very raw for some. Um, it, it highlights at times our, our um, failures and our inability to do what we know internally to be right. And I know, God, that there is a, uh, a lot of people in this room who are struggling in these things and that it could be so easy for the tempter to tempt us away from you and to tell us we're no good and to tell us we've failed too much, that we can't be loved by you. And the Lord, we know that's not true. I pray that your spirit would protect us, that you would, that you would draw us closer to Jesus, that you would help us to recognize our faults and failings and to bring them to the cross of Christ, which is our only hope. We pray that we would do that together and that we'd walk in newness of life because you have given us this life. God, I just pray for each of our hearts today. I don't know where every person in this room is, but you do. And I pray you would work in us as you will. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.